All right, so we are in 1 Peter, and we've been working our way slowly, verse by verse, through this book of the Bible. We are in chapter 3 tonight, and if you remember last time, Jeremy covered verses 13 through 17, but, and so we're going to be picking up in verse 18, but in order to understand the context of 18 through 20, uh, we need to also jump into 17 for just a minute so we can understand the rest of these verses that we're going to be reading tonight. So I'm going to start reading in verse 17. I'm just going to read 17 through 20. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight than what we normally do. I'm going to do a a quick overview of verses 17 through 20, and then I'm going to go back and cover them a little bit closely, a little bit more closely. So I'm going to do this in order to keep us from getting lost in the weeds here. If we move too slowly here, then we can lose the context of what's going on. But also at the same time, this is God's word, so it, it really deserves very careful study. So we're going to try to do both tonight. We're going to do a 10,000 foot view and then we're going to move back and zoom in a little bit closer to take a little bit better look at this. And so one of the things I should probably mention from the first is that this is a pretty controversial text because many people teach that Jesus went to hell after his death on Calvary for us. Um, I don't hold to that view, and I'm going to show you why whenever we do our first 10,000-foot view, our first sweep, which is what we're going to do. But you need to, clo- you need to follow pretty closely because um, this can get kind of confusing. So let's look at 17. 17 sets up our context of what's going on here. Verse 17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. So this context is what carries on to help explain what's going on in the rest of this. First he says, it is better. It is better. These words show us here that we're getting a comparison, right? We have a comparison happening here. A a comparison between people who are in the will of God versus people outside the will of God. And then he goes on, he says, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. So people who are in the will of God will do what is right according to this, and there may be suffering involved, right? But then he says, rather, rather than doing what is wrong. You can underline that word rather. This is our comparison that that I'm talking about here. The people outside of the will of God, 
they do what is wrong, and still there will be suffering involved. So now that we understand that there's a comparison here between people in the will of God who may suffer and people outside of the will of God who will suffer, Peter gives us an example. Peter gives us an example, and this is the key, really, of following through these verses and understanding that these are examples and they are two comparisons. Let's start with 18. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now we, the people sitting in this room, are the people that Christ died for. We were made alive by the Holy Spirit. Follow me so far? Verse 19 says, In which also, in which also, so we can see the comparison here. This is our comparison, comparing those who do wrong. It says he went, that's Jesus went, Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who brought us life. You follow me so far? We can see that we're dealing here with a point in time, in other words. We're dealing with a point in time, not necessarily after the death of Christ. We could be dealing with before the death of Christ. Jesus died for us, but he did something else, and that was during the time of Noah, as we will learn. He goes on and says, And made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So this same Holy Spirit that saved us also preached Christ to the spirits now in prison. So again, we're dealing with an example, not a chronology. Verse 20 says, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So you see the, the reason that these spirits are now in prison is because they were disobedient during the time of Noah. Now what did Noah do? He was preaching to them the whole time that he was building the ark. And we find this in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Let me read it to you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, and here it is, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, the world of ungodly. So here we can see that Noah was preaching, right? He was preaching, how do you preach? By the power of the Holy Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit who saved us also preached through Noah to people who rejected him. And so the spirits who are now in prison are those who rejected Jesus through the preaching of Noah. This is really showing us that we have assurance of salvation, isn't it? And this is brought out in verse 17 when we get to that, but we learn that the people of God do what is right. And the spirits in hell didn't do what was right. They did what was wrong by rejecting the very same Holy Spirit who saved us. This doesn't mean that Christ went to preach to the spirits after he was crucified. It means he preached to them during the time of Noah. Does that make sense so far? That's kind of our, our 10,000 foot view. Um, I just wanted to kind of cover that to clear up some things here because 
This is controversial. There's other opinions, as I've brought up, but I think this is the one that makes the most sense. So I'm going to go back and look at 17 and 18 again real quick. We're going to zoom in just a little bit closer. 17 says, and make sure you follow along because, again, it, it can get kind of confusing. Verse 17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So the first thing that we should recognize here is that Peter's showing us that God is completely sovereign. God is completely sovereign. We can only suffer if God has willed it or ordained that we should suffer. So we should establish first that God is sovereign and he's in complete control. It's not the devil. The devil's not in control. Chance isn't in control. God. God is in control. Nothing happens outside the will of God. Nothing. And that should be something that's comforting. But that brings up another question, doesn't it? And that's why would God ordain suffering to begin with? Well, also remember that Peter's talking to Christians here, right? What caused, what caused all this suffering to begin with? Well, it's what we call original sin. It's Adam and Eve's treason against God. You see, they had the entire world, and the only thing that they had to obey was just one rule, right? But they chose treason because Satan told them that they could be like God in Genesis chapter 3. Let me read it to you real quick. Genesis 3, 2 through 4 says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and here it is, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So because Adam and Eve committed treason against God, God, he cursed all of his creation. And suffering and death entered into this world for the first time. That's how it all started. So to answer the question, why is there suffering in the world? The answer is because Adam and Eve sinned against God, right? But something that we should understand is that suffering has a purpose to it. Suffering has a purpose. And there's really four reasons that I came up with on, on this as to why that suffering has a purpose. Number one, God uses suffering to draw us to himself. Because suffering teaches us something that we're weak. We're weak people and we're totally dependent upon God. People who are in need of nothing, they have a really hard time understanding that they are weak and needy and dependent upon God. In reality, though, every single person is in this condition. They just don't understand it because they have the same problem that Satan had, and that is that they're full of pride. God will remove all obstacles that keeps a believer from himself. And sometimes he uses suffering in order to accomplish this. This should tell us something that when we're facing suffering, we should look to God and ask him what it is that he's teaching us through this, right? And by the way, this is the opposite of what the world does when they encounter suffering. The world doesn't learn from their suffering, but instead they blame God for their suffering and they hate him. 
in even a greater way because of his suffering, because of their suffering. But a Christian doesn't do that because we know that God is perfectly good. And we know that God is working all things out together for us, for those who love him, right? So this is the, one of the main reasons that we can see why God uses suffering. Number two is God uses suffering to give us assurance of salvation. There's a point in every believer's life as they're beginning to grow in Jesus Christ that they sometimes begin to doubt their salvation. And often it's after they've read 1 John. If you guys have ever read 1 John, every time I read 1 John, I go, no, I'm lost. <laughs> it's a tough one. But when you're faced with suffering, and sometimes we suffer even because of someone that we love's suffering, when we face this, we really have one of two reactions, don't we? We either draw closer to God and cling to Him, or you're going to be driven away to you're going to be driven to hate Him, just like the world hates Him. And this really affirms something inside of us. You're either with Him, you either belong to Him, or you're lost. When a Christian comes out of suffering, we can look back over the years and we can see that we clung to God and we depended on Him and depended on His strength. And this is something that really solidifies our faith. This is something that stamps our faith into concrete. And we know that without question that we belong to Jesus Christ. So this is the second way that God sometimes uses suffering. The third way, number three, God uses suffering to keep us from getting too comfortable with this world and to long for our true home. To long for our true home. We don't belong to this world. We belong to God's kingdom. And suffering sometimes reminds us of this truth because it causes us to long for Jesus' return, to long for his kingdom. In 1 Peter, if you remember back, 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And then he goes on and he tells us some things, right? He's letting us know here that we do not belong to this world. So sometimes suffering causes us to really long for his return, right? Number four, Jesus uses suffering to give us experience to help other people. To give us experience to help other people. And this is probably our final and ultimate purpose for suffering. We use our experiences to help those who are facing the same things that we've already gone through by the grace of God. The second thing that we should see also here in verse 17 is that people will suffer either way, either by doing what is right, it says, or by doing what is wrong. But the difference here is that a Christian suffers for a purpose, but the world suffers in vain. A Christian suffers for purpose, and the world suffers in vain. Yet, this is interesting, because even the world's going to suffer for a purpose when they die, because they're going to glorify God. Because God, as the justifier, will be glorified. That's something that's antithetical, really. The world hates God, but ultimately, they're going to glorify Him because of His justice. Because of His justice. Now, we're going to be, look at verse 18, and we're going to be in this verse the rest of our time here. So, again, follow real closely. Verse 18 says, 
For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this is our indicative. You remember a few weeks ago we talked about indicative versus imperatives. Jesus here is our example of suffering, as he always He's always our example, isn't it? We've been seeing this again and again and again through through First Peter, that Jesus is our example. And no person ever suffered like Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 18 again. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Now this is dealing with past, present, and future sins. This is very comforting if you're a believer. Jesus died for the sins that you have committed. He uh, also died for the sins that you're presently committing and the sins that you will commit in the future, right? This is something that is embraced by the true Christian with tears. And this is something that's taken for granted by the false convert. Let me say that again. This is embraced by the true Christian with tears. And this is taken for granted by the false convert. That's how that you know that you belong to him, isn't it? That when you sin, it crushes you because you know that you sinned against a God who's perfectly holy and loved you enough to die for you. But the false convert, instead of this crushing them, they embrace their sins and they try to use God's grace as a license to sin. The Christian hates the sin that they once loved and now they embrace the holiness that they once despised. When you understand that your sins have been paid for, past, present, future, then you cling to the cross like a, like a child clinging to his father's leg as he's trying to go to work. You cling with tears because you love him. This goes on and it says Jesus died for the unjust. It says the just for the unjust, there's only one that is just, and that is God. And that the just died for the unjust is something that's hard for us to understand. It's something that's incomprehensible. Really, that was the only way that it could have happened, right? That's the only way. The unjust couldn't die for the unjust. It had to be a spotless lamb. We understand that Jesus Christ was a spotless lamb. He was a lamb who had no sin. He had never done anything wrong. It had to be Jesus Christ. But not only was and is he perfectly spotless, but he was and perfectly is just, right? A perfectly just judge issues perfectly just punishment for crime against God himself. In the eyes of God, you see, one sin has to be paid for. And we understand that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what you get paid, what your labor is for committing that sin is eternal death in a place called hell. And on top of that, Matthew 5, 48 says, this is Jesus talking, he says, therefore you are to be perfect. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus here is showing us that if we're relying on just being a good person to be saved, if we're relying on obeying the law to be saved, to have eternal life, then we have to be perfect. And of course, we understand that this is impossible. This is something that we can easily understand. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. The just died for the unjust. 
right? The unjust is you. The unjust is me. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. And there's an outcome. Look at verse um, 18 again. It continues. It says, so that he might bring us to God. This is our outcome. Why did the just die for the unjust? So that he, not us, Jesus, might bring us to God. And there's no greater truth in this. There's no greater peace than understanding this. There's nothing that's more comforting than understanding that Jesus died for you so that you could one day stand before God blameless. This isn't a question, by the way. He isn't saying, well, if I died for you, then I may or may not bring you to God. No, he's saying, if I died for you, I did this, and I will bring you to God. Notice that this is all the work of Jesus Christ, by the way. There's nothing that we can bring to God except for our sins. We don't aid in our salvation any whatsoever. It's uh, all the work of Jesus Christ. It's all the work of God. And that's important to understand. We cannot be impressive to God. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't even work alongside God to be saved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 says, And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, the two greatest words in all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. God gets all of the glory, all of it. St. Augustine, he once said that God crowns his own works. God crowns his own works. Think about that for a minute because there's great truth in this statement and it's really truth that will bring you to humility because God did all the work and he placed a crown upon your head as though you earned it. And we realize this in heaven, though we really should understand it now. And we can see this in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 verse 9 says, And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And here it is. And will cast their crowns before the throne. The 24 elders, they cast their crowns before the feet of Jesus Christ because they understand that they did nothing. It was all the work of God. God crowns his own works, as St. Augustine said. The work of Christ brings us to God and then we stand before him one day 
and we're going to glorify him because we understand that we did nothing. It's clear that God wants us to understand this, and that's not only then, but now, right? Because it's all through the Bible. And back in, in 18, if we look at the, the last part of this, it says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So once again, Jesus is our example. Jesus took on the nature of man. He went to the cross and he died for us. He died for us so that we could be made alive in the spirit, as this says. Because again, the wages of sin is death. Jesus was sinless and he bore our sins. At the cross, your sins, my sins, was placed upon Jesus Christ and God's wrath was poured out upon him. A perfectly sinless, spotless lamb. It was all poured out upon him for all of those who believe. Now, by the power and perfect choice of God himself, you have been born again. And a newborn baby has new life. They have been made alive by God. So we realize that we are his. You're made alive in the spirit for the first time. And now you're able to put to death the desires of the flesh that once controlled you. And notice here it says, put to death in the flesh. It doesn't say put the flesh to death, right? Gnosticism was something that was prevalent back then. And it taught that the flesh itself was evil. The only thing that was good was that which was spiritual. So Gnostics would deny that Jesus had a physical body because Jesus, uh, if he had a physical body, then he would have been a sinner because flesh itself was evil. But scripture doesn't teach that the flesh is evil. It teaches that being in the flesh is evil, right? And there's a big difference here. There's a big difference. So the flesh itself is made by God, right? And so all of God's creation was good according to Genesis chapter 1. But the fall of man in, cha in chapter 3 that we read earlier, uh, it shows how that our flesh was corrupted, right? So in that way, then we begin to get old and we die, right? But also the desires of mankind was cursed. It shows in uh, Genesis chapter 6 that the heart of man was only evil continually. So people are made up of two parts, soul and body. So this is called a dichotomy, by the way. And so when the curse happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, both soul and body was cursed. The body was made to die, to be separated from the soul, and the soul was put into a state of eternal death to be separated from God. So this is what the Bible refers to those who go to hell in Revelation chapter 20 as experiencing the second death. The second death, if that makes sense. So the first was in the garden, and it was passed on to all of Adam's offspring, according to Romans chapter 5. And so we understand that, that both were cursed, right? And this should help Ephesians chapter 2 to make even more sense now, where it says that you were dead, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's talking about our souls. But when Jesus went to the cross, his body was put to death for your sins so that your spirit, as this is talking about here in verse 18, could experience life for the very first time. Again, all we bring to God is our sins, right? God brings the rest. God brings the rest. He died for you. 
He brought you to life. He saved you. And he's coming again, right? He's coming again. That's the thing that we're looking forward to. And he makes us a part of his family eternally. If you belong to him. So that's the question, isn't it? Do you belong to him? Has he given you faith? Has he made you alive? If not, then this is the time. There's no time like the present. There's no time to fall at Jesus' feet and ask him to accept you into his kingdom, to give you eternal life, to bring your soul to life for the first time eternally, right? Eternally Jesus's, as you were made to be. And if he's given you faith already, then we should worship him for that, right? For all the things that he's done for us and for who he is. And we're so grateful for the work of Jesus Christ and the blood that was poured out for us. I hope that this makes more sense to you guys now. If you have any questions, just let me know because I know there's some confusing things in here. We kind of rushed through it because we had limited time. There's a lot to talk about. In, the, in these verses, but we got through it as best we could in the time that we had. So we're going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to dismiss into our classes. It'll give us time to talk a little bit more about this.